Produced in association with KPMG Australia, this is What Happens Next with Bernard Salt. Hello, I'm Bernard Salt. On this edition of the program, we discuss the future of financial services. One of the most rapid accelerations towards digital channels, away from cash, away from face-to-face interactions, and people more and more using digital and innovative ways of banking. Disasters, I think, give everybody a lot of courage to do big, bold things and to do them quickly. And we look at the innovations that are creating the banks of the future. You have to invest in the technology and it draws across, I mean, some quite staggering numbers. I think it's 150 billion different data points in real time, 200 different machine learning models to effectively run a process for each individual customer that logs into the ComBank app. What is the next most important thing to share with them? That's all coming up when we discover what happens next. The financial services landscape looks fundamentally different to what it did 10 years ago. Digital transformation, evolving customer expectations and new entrants into the sector have long been disruptive forces. But COVID-19 has accelerated that speed of change. To look at this more closely, I spoke to Anna Bly, CEO of the Australian Banking Association and Daniel Knoll, National Lead Partner, Financial Services, KPMG. Anna Bly, Daniel Knoll, welcome to the program. Great to be here. Thanks, Bernard. Anna, if I could start with you. Technology allows for rapid innovation and transformation in a sector like banking. How are industry organisations such as yours staying on top of these changes? Well, there's no doubt that uh, the world of banking and finance is a very fast-paced environment. Uh, I think it's challenging um, to all of the players, um, whether they're member banks, whether they're fintechs, but industry associations as well, to just you know keep a pace with it. Uh, but what we do see, and we've particularly seen it in the last 12 months, you know, one of the most rapid accelerations of a trend towards digital channels, away from cash, away from face-to-face interactions, and people more and more doing their banking using the biggest raft of digital and you know, innovative ways of banking that we've ever seen, I think. Daniel, the Reserve Bank of New Zealand announced it would stop checking facilities over the next 12 months. How do you make these kinds of shifts and bring the customer along with you? I think um, if you look at New Zealand and if you look at banks like ASB, Checks represent less than 1% of its payment volumes, but they are actually quite an expensive um, medium for them to, uh, to maintain from an infrastructure perspective. And, you know, to Anna's point before, adopting a change like this can be quite significant for certain customer segments, particularly older customers um, and customers in, in remote and rural communities. So the success of, of transitioning them away from using checks is very much dependent on creating um, viable alternatives uh, for customers to use and educating them um, around those alternatives. In, in this market, the dependent variable is really the adoption of digital payments um, and having a reliable access to those payments through reliable um, internet and infrastructure that sits around it. So if we look at our market, having um, a strong NBN network, having the new payments platform um, could certainly or would certainly assist with this in this market. 
Why does Australia tend to be more advanced regarding innovating sectors, more so than, say, our US or UK counterparts? Anna, your thoughts? Well, it's an interesting question, and I don't know that many Australian customers realise how advanced we are. We are, you know, in the top three or four countries in the world for use of digital platforms for banking. And I think there's a number of reasons. Firstly, um, and I think we've got a stable regulatory environment. We've got a reserve bank and a payments system that has been competitive, uh, innovative, and has had all of the sort of regulatory support to do things that facilitate this sort of move, particularly if you compare it to the US market, where you've got thousands of very small banks and you know nobody really has the scale to invest in something like the new payments platform that facilitates real-time instant payments digitally, um, has been funded by um, a number of Australian banks and the Reserve Bank of Australia. And you know, I just can't imagine a situation in which the US banking system could get itself together to do something like that. So it's a really good example of you know the four pillars policy serving the public interest in terms of having just the sheer capability to invest in that sort of infrastructure. Well, it's great to see that we're leading in some area. Daniel, your your thoughts? Yeah, look, I think to echo a couple of things Anna said, I think the reg and market structure in this market is quite different. And, you know, I was uh, in the UK when we were trying to roll out PayWave there. And um, the challenge that they faced there was the massive fragmentation on the retail side. I think the other critical element here has been the focus of the government and our regulators and driving and investing in, um, in innovation, which is great. And, you know, Australia is largely a services economy, which is underpinned by the effectiveness of our FS sector. So for us to be competitive, um, we have to innovate to attract business, uh, attract talent and uh, investment into the market. And I think we're really fortunate that our government and regulators have made quite a few deliberate efforts to focus on innovation and make the market more attractive. And we talked about, um, you know, NPP, but, but the open banking regime, the consumer data right and the establishment of a, a, a fintech regulatory sandbox, I think, are, are some really interesting examples. To what extent has COVID helped accelerate or decelerate the speed of innovation in the banking sector? This time I might start with you, Daniel. Yes, um, it might be a bit uh, bit cliche, but uh, we've said to many of our clients um, during this period um, that we should never waste a, a good crisis. <laughs> um, and, uh, and I think, you know, in many ways, we've seen our clients really lean in, in a way that they've never lent into anything before. As we talked, we've seen our um, institutions really double down on digital and have also um, addressed some of the challenges around their offshore capabilities. And I think that's been rewarded with a significant increase in adoption of, of digital uh, customers. And, um, you know, and that's also been, as, as Anna and I pointed out earlier, uh, been very much the case in typically resistant um, demographics. We also heard a lot about some really um, exciting and innovative technology workarounds that frankly would have taken um, months and years to, to happen under ordinary circumstances. We, we saw things like wet signatures being exited for a time. Um, the other one that really caught my eye was how organisations and the regulators really started to think differently about business continuity um, and maintaining their businesses during times of, of crisis. And look, historically, business continuity had been thought about, and I'm being very broad and general here, um, as a process to sort of create layers around the leaders. 
Uh, and what we found um, during this crisis was that actually it was that person who was putting documents together in an offshore location that if they suddenly weren't available, created quite a significant operational issue for the organisations. So it's really great. I think that the, the pandemic has really accelerated uh, the way both organisations and the regulator think about what's most important in the continuity of the business and also um, what's allowed them to move um, significantly more rapidly than we might have seen otherwise. Anna, have the banks been leaning in to the pandemic? Um, absolutely. I think your original question was, has COVID helped to accelerate or decelerate the speed of innovation? I, I can't think of anywhere in this sector where it's decelerated um, as a result of COVID. I think it feels like you know, COVID just poured accelerant onto a trend that was already well and truly established. And I think that's happened on all fronts. It's happened inside banks, as Daniel alluded to, um, you know, lots of learning, lots of investment in new capability. But I think just as importantly, it's um, happened remarkably with customers. The public has got very used to um, cashless transactions, more and more people moving, you know, into digital wallets. The PayWave card, the tap and go card is, is now in decline as a result of people moving into the digital wallet space. But customers can only do that because merchants moved. And of course, merchants originally moved during COVID to, um, you know, saying they wouldn't take cash because they saw it as a health risk to them, to their staff and to their customers. They didn't want to handle and their staff didn't want to handle cash in an environment where we were very uncertain about how the um, virus was transmitted. But actually, now that many of those, particularly smaller merchants, have found that they're not handling cash anymore, that's completely changed their business. And it's saving them money, and many of them are not going back. Uh, but I think the other thing that's been important is um, a shift in government. They just quickly moved to do things that had been hanging around for decades. Wet signatures is a great example. Um, you know, the ability to put e-signatures on documents that would be legally binding, to have e-witnessing of documents. If you think about how much time and effort goes into all of that documentation, um, in its very last century. Hmm. And, you know, government shifted literally in 24 hours on that. And if we hadn't been for COVID, we'd still be talking to government about it. Disasters, I think, give everybody a lot of courage to do big, bold things and to do them quickly. Anna and Daniel, thanks for helping us discover what happens next. Thank you. Thanks, Bernard. Well, as mentioned, Australia's banking and financial services is a hive of innovation and constant change. To look at the variety of developments in the sector, I caught up with Toby Norton-Smith, Managing Director at X15 Ventures. Toby Norton-Smith, welcome to the program. Thank you very much, Bernard. Very happy to be here. As we know, there's been a COVID-led digitisation of businesses. Do you think this pace will continue? I'm actually not sure the pace can continue, Bernard. Um, I think based on different metrics, we've probably seen five to 10 years of digital growth in the last one year, or you know, in some cases, the first eight weeks of, of the lockdown that we all experienced in different ways. But, but yes, not, not to be too sort of bleak, yes, the digitization journey 
um, will continue, uh, be that you know, absolute digitization of experiences or sort of putting digital wrappers around inherent physical experiences like um, you know, grocery and food delivery, which again, we all would have lived through. So uh, yes, I think the, the trend will continue, the, the, the pace, I think, um, hard to sustain um, the, the rate that we had in the first year. You know, what we have seen in the last year is a real sort of elasticity or, or openness of sort of consumers to behavioural change and some really good problem solving of sort of complex industries, you know, be it health or education or even exercise in our own homes, that digitisation has really started sort of addressing. So I think for so both of those two reasons, you know, you'd have to believe that this is not an, an aberration, the digitisation that, that's continued. What effect will rapid digitisation have on the way people engage with their bank? Will it create a diversity of business models? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, from one perspective, banks, you know, particularly in Australia, actually, you've been quite advanced and, and, you know, on most of the sort of global rankings that look at the experience of sort of digital banking, Australian banks and, and the bank that I work at, ComBank, you know, always rank very highly, not just in the digital experiences, but also in the proliferation and the really early take up by Australians of sort of contactless payments, i.e. people tapping their, you know, originally their credit cards and now their phones. Does that mean that branch service for big banks uh, will go away anytime soon? I absolutely don't think so. I think, you know, what we see with customers is that in those, you know, moments that really matter, um, which happens obviously in banking, um, people still want a branch or they still want a call center. You know, and in fact, the data we have suggests that actually, you know, some of the most valuable customers uh, use both channels, digital and physical channels quite heavily. How will banks manage the transition from being data custodians to data brokers? And what will that look like? Yeah, I think the thesis that I have is that banks for, you know, probably centuries now have been custodians and, and sort of, if you like, brokers of people's money, taking deposits and lending on the other side. And so really what I'm urging, you know, our bank and I know our bank is doing and others are thinking about is, you know, how can you take that same model but apply that to the data that a bank collects uh, on behalf of its customers based on all the activity, you know, the most obvious one being, you know, where and uh, where they shop their transaction data. So I think it's obviously one that banks will tread, you know, very cautiously into, you know, it's one thing to protect a customer's data. It's another thing to utilize that data for their benefit. But I think it's one that ultimately, if it creates value for customers and customers want it, you know, is something that banks will step into. So, uh, you know, maybe if I can sort of bring that to life a bit with some numbers. There's a sort of very famous investor in the US, Kathy Wood, who um, runs a business called ARK Invest. And every year they come out with that, you know, big ideas for the year. She was sort of famously a very early backer of Tesla. You know, one of their big ideas for um, 2021 was the sort of entrenchment of this concept of a digital wallet. So someone being able to, you know, pay for things and buy things and see all of their transactions in, in, in one place, which is not far off from what a banking app is in Australia. And in the US, there are sort of almost separate apps that do this, uh, ones like Venmo or SquarePay Cash. Anyway, when they looked at those digital wallets and they saw the potential value they could create per customer, they put a, a value on that of about $20,000 per customer long term as the value that could accrue if you held that relationship with a customer. And over half of that value 
didn't actually come from anything to do with finance. It wasn't about being able to uh, make payments or, you know, transition a person into maybe consuming a credit card product or take out a mortgage or whatever else. It was from saying, if I have that data of a customer and I know where they shop and how they shop, I have a really tremendous and privileged insight into their preferences. And so the opportunities to help them, you know, find better both online and also offline sort of shopping or commerce opportunities was one area that they drilled into. And so I think, you know, that's the space banks will um, go into. I don't think, you know, banks will look to monetize it, so to speak. I think there's there's too much value in a banking relationship. What I think banks will do, and actually ComBank's already done a lot of this, is start to uh, create extra sources of value for customers um, from using that data you know, with their permission. And I'll give you some very simple examples. You know, ComBank launched a, a product uh, a couple of years ago now, I think, called Benefits Finder. Pretty simple concept. It looks at what we know about you as a customer, then asks you to tell, you know, a few more things about you that we may not know. And then it effectively just aggregates up the hundreds of government benefits that sit at a federal and a state level and plays them back to a customer and says, hey, you may be eligible for this. Yeah, and that's a really simple example of it, but it's one that I know from a sort of customer satisfaction point of view has been really, really popular uh, and has saved, you know, over hundreds of millions of dollars now for customers. And that is, you know, at its simplest, a brokering of data that we already have about a customer to make sure that they're getting the most out of benefits that are on offer, in this case, from sort of state and federal governments. It seems to me that AI would play a role here. Where are the opportunities and the challenges yeah, absolutely. I mean, people talk about great products ending up sort of having segments of one, i.e. everything becomes hyper-personalized inside an app and an experience, and that's no different in banking. To be able to do that, ComBank has uh, over 10 million customers. So to be able to build a digital service that's personalized for a customer, you have to invest in the technology and infrastructure to do that. But sitting behind that, you need something with the intelligence to say, this customer values this information or this customer values this service or would be interested in this product more than another. You know, and that's where ComBank actually for years has invested in and built out a platform that it calls its customer engagement engine. And it draws across, I mean, some quite staggering numbers. I think it's 150 billion different data points in real time, uh, 200 different machine learning models to effectively run a process which says for each individual uh, customer that logs into the ComBank app, what is the next most important thing to share with them? Be that through a nudge or a notification in the app or sometimes even an outbound phone call or a conversation in branch. So there's this AI capability that's really looking at a customer and saying, what is most valuable for them? Uh, and it's not just about financial products. It's also, you know, the benefits example uh, I gave you before. It could be, you know, really highlighting to a customer that they're missing out on an opportunity to save some money um, through the government, for example. So that's an engine that ComBank's invested in, uh, you know, over the last few years. And it absolutely underpins that personalization because, to, you know, to do any form of personalization at scale, you need AI or some sort of technology to, to drive that in. So, yeah, in terms of the challenges, I mean, I think critically, the customer needs to be absolutely clear on what notifications they're receiving and why. They need to sort of be at the center uh, of that experience. And, you know, 
clearly that's built into any good user experience for a customer to say, look, I'm not interested in that or I don't want to see that. You know, I think being very conscious about sort of how you use that data in the customer's interest is certainly going to be at the forefront of any bank's mind. And I think more broadly, you know, regulators obviously would be very interested in making sure people talk a lot in AI about explainability. You know, how can you explain how an AI machine has come up with a particular insight? Clearly, when it comes to lending decisions, you know, banks have always been required to be very, very disciplined in uh, being able to document how and on what criteria they've lent people funding. uh, And I don't see that changing. How do banks, which are known to be large and move slowly, respond to the rapid demand for new technology and solutions from their customers? Yeah, it's uh, it's a good question, but you're right. You know, banks have very um, serious you know, obligations and, and, and responsibilities. They're, they're dealing with people's welfare and their money. Uh, you know, so there's there's no room to uh, to quote Mark Zuckerberg to move fast and break things. You know, you can't adopt um, that approach to some of your core products and services. So, you know, I, I think the approach banks uh, will take, and certainly Combank's taking this, is it's sort of almost two part. You know, when you think about the core of the bank the core services, products, the security of data, the security of a customer's money, there will be no tolerance for failure. The security, safety, and sort of scalability of that digital experience will be paramount. And so banks will build out really, really resilient core digital banking systems. But then how do you build all the sort of interesting experiences and innovations around the side of that? And that's where I think banks have started thinking about one of two things. Um, The first is how do you, through APIs, enable other third parties to build services in and around um, your core banking products? Uh, And then the other approach is to say, well, why don't we set up a separate vehicle or a separate business to build some of those experiences that has, you know, a vehicle that is not building financial products and can move a little bit faster and, you know, and maybe even break some things. And again, that's that's certainly what ComBank did in setting up the vehicle that I've got the privilege of running called X15 Ventures, where we're explicitly focused on building, investing in, or acquiring ventures in and around banking that can bring some of that innovation to ComBank's customers. But we can build things a little bit faster because we're sort of set up outside of the bank, you know, and don't have some of those like really, really weighty and underlying obligations if you're providing sort of core financial services to customers. Toby Norton-Smith, thanks for helping us discover what happens next. My pleasure. Hello, I'm Whitney Fitzsimmons, the executive producer of What Happens Next. And now it's that time in the program for something a little bit different where we turn the tables and I get to interview our host and resident demographer, Bernard Salt. So, Bernard, wasn't it interesting to hear from Anna and Daniel how advanced the Australian banking sector is compared to its overseas counterparts? I must say that my ears really did prick up there. Not that my ears weren't pricked up right throughout that the interview, but um, that really did appeal to me. And the reasons for that, they said that you know, because of the concentration of banks, uh, four banks, and I think it was Anna made the point of hundreds, if not thousands of banks in the uh, in the US. And the other point they made was the concentration of retail. So what had been seen as a negative in Australia, that is the clustering of a small number of banks and a clustering of a small number of big retailers, is actually a positive 
when it comes to being able to introduce the latest and the best uh, technology. At the end of the day, Whitney, that is a demographic issue. I always find the link <laughs> back to demographics. So it is the Australian demographics that, uh, that makes us uh, so susceptible and responsive to the latest technology. So yeah, very, very interesting. And and Toby had some interesting insights into how AI or artificial intelligence will play a role in the future. Well, look, again, I think he was talking about there where uh, a bank, for example, might use um, its knowledge of your spending behaviour regarding different stores or different purchases or whatever, uh, and then being able to gear um, advice around the next best, you know, the next product that you might be interested in and so forth. You know, I kind of get that. And I think all sorts of platforms uh, are doing that. I mean, if you, uh, uh, if you buy stuff online, then the platform is likely to suggest other, other purchases. I think that's, that's where that whole, um, AI, um, system is, uh, is heading. Although I will say that, um, nothing any of those uh, organisations present to me, I find of interest. I, th- I think, Whitney, I have the most bizarre buying behaviour that I have confounded the algorithms of banks and confounded retailers. Confounded yourself. And I have. I have indeed. Yes, I'm all over the shop. <laughs> all right. Well, thanks, Bernard. My pleasure. And thank you for listening to What Happens Next. been listening to What Happens Next with Bernard Salt. Produced in association with KPMG Australia. If you enjoyed this episode, you can subscribe to the show through Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts.